You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. First part is out of bondage. And today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 5, verses 17 through 23. So if you could, go ahead and open up with me to that. If you find yourself without a Bible this morning, um, there should be a Bible somewhere around you in a seat back, or underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, go ahead and open up with us. And if you don't have a Bible at home, consider that a gift uh, from us to you. Because, uh, again, we value the word so greatly, we want to be able to extend that to you. Again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 5, verses 17 through 23. If you get there, go ahead and rise with me for the reading of God's word. And again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 5, verses 17 through 23. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. Um, I'm uh, very happy to be with you, very happy to be in front of you. Um, I am looking forward to encountering such a great joy and honor that I get to preach uh, and bring the word and open up the Bible uh, with you guys. So like Scott said, we are going to be uh, continuing our journey through the book of Exodus, um, a series that we have titled Out of Bondage. Uh, but before I move forward, I think it's, it's really important, especially for those who have not either listened or been a part of the series up until this point, for you to know where we're at. So um, up until this point, um, the people of God have entered into Egypt, and they entered together as a small people, but with a very hopeful outlook, uh, because Joseph was second in command, he had uh, the, uh, the approval from Pharaoh, and the people of God were promised to be protected, cared for, and provided for in a way that they had never seen up until that moment. It really uh, looked like the promises that God had given Abraham were going to flourish um, and just move straight into, into all the joys of life. However, they didn't happen uh, because what, uh, what happened is a new Pharaoh came in and the new Pharaoh did not know who Joseph was. And so with a new Pharaoh came a new outlook. And the new outlook was bleak. It was not, um, it was not happy because this pharaoh was um, insecure. This, uh, this pharaoh did not, uh, he did not like the people of Israel and felt threatened by them. And so what he did was he sent them into slavery. And with, this, uh, with this, these years of slavery uh, came this decree to, uh, to kill all of the babies that were uh, boys up until a certain age. And that's where you get Moses, who has um, been hidden and passed down a river, who's picked up by one of the handmaidens, who gives uh, Moses to the uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and he's raised as a prince of Egypt inside the, uh, the chambers of the Pharaoh himself. 
However, as he grows up, uh, Moses begins to have a different set of morals, a different set of ethics than the people around him. And so when he sees one of the Egyptians beating one of the Hebrew slaves, he takes matters into his own hands, and he ends up killing this Egyptian. Uh, but, no, but Moses knew what he did wrong, and so in knowing what he did wrong, he fled. He fled into the desert, and in this desert, he meets God. Not in the way that he thought he would, but in the form of a burning bush. And God himself, I am who I am, speaks to him and gives him a commission from that point on that Moses was going to be the one to deliver his people, that God had heard the cries of his people and was going to deliver them. And so Moses goes to the people of Israel. Um, He ends up receiving another call to be the one to go into Pharaoh and talk to him. He brings Aaron alongside him, and God gives him these powerful signs to show him what it was going to look like for him to go into Pharaoh and basically put on display all of God's powers. And so he tells him, here's a staff. And that staff not only is a sign of authority, but that staff can also turn into a serpent, which in the Egyptian culture was also a sign of authority. And by Moses being able to control it meant that Pharaoh was not in control anymore. God was. And then the second sign was that Moses could reach into his cloak and pull out his hand and it was leprosy. And this was a disease that no one could control. There was no cure for it. But Moses, who could also put his hand back in the cloak, would get rid of leprosy, and it showed to the Egyptians that God was in control, not him. And then lastly, he could turn the Nile water into blood, which is an an incredible feat because that in and of itself was the source of finances, was the source of uh, wealth and prosperity for the Egyptian people. It was, the the Nile River was one one of the biggest commerce areas, and Moses now showed, I have control over this. God does, you don't. And so this Moses, being able to take these signs, showed it in front of the people of Israel, and they were, inc- they were very encouraged. For the first time in a long time, they experienced hope that they never had. They had been in years of slavery with a bleak outlook, and now they've heard from God that he's going to deliver them, and then showed these incredible signs that proved that he had the power to do so. And so for us, this leads us to this morning in this chapter that we're going into. And so what I hope for us and my hope for you is that as we get into today's verses, you would learn two things. The first one is that your standard for God's faithfulness in your life would ascend past your circumstances, number one. And then number two, that even in the greatest of trials, your hope in Christ would flourish. And if you don't have a hope in Christ, that you would find it and that God would meet you here. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father God, we rest before you this morning. We lay all of our plans, all of our thoughts, all of our ideals, we lay them before you. God, here this morning, we could be anywhere else, but we're here with you. And so God, we pray that you would take advantage of this situation, take advantage of this time with us. God, for those of us that don't know you, that you would change us, Give us a heart of flesh and change that heart of stone. Transform us. Do the work that only you can do. For those of us that have grown weary, we ask that you would bring us hope and encourage us. And for those that are strong and walking in their faith, God, we pray that you would 
continue to push them along the path to help others and bring them with them. God, we, uh, we submit before your word. We acknowledge that no opinions can change the heart of man, but your word can. And so, God, we ask that you would be present and your spirit would be amongst us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Okay, so this brings us into chapter number five. And chapter number five is, for all intents and purposes, a hiccup in what they think is going to be the most hopeful, positive outlook of the people of God. And so... I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to paraphrase most of it until we get to verse number 17. But so what happens at this point is Moses and Aaron, they perform the signs in front of the people, and the people are incredibly encouraged. They, at this point, know God is going to deliver them. And they do have their own way and vision of what this looks like. But God has only promised, I will deliver you. And so what he does is Moses and Aaron go into the chambers of the Pharaoh to tell them this, and he says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, don't miss the gravity of this confrontation, because Pharaoh believes that he is the God of Egypt, the master of the Hebrews. Pharaoh believes that he is the one who denies when they work and when they don't work, when they rest and when they don't rest. He is the one who gets to decide when, what, and whether or not they eat at all. And so for Moses to walk in and said, hey, God said that you have to let your people rest and let them have a feast. This was a direct challenge to Pharaoh's authority. And so the gravity of this situation is dire because in that moment, Pharaoh could absolutely just have both of them killed for that kind of treason, to come in and say, hey, I know that you are saying that you're God and you have authority, but actually you hold no deity and no authority. The God of Israel, Yahweh, Adonai, he is the real master. He is the one who is giving you commands. This would have been absolutely treasonous in the eyes of Pharaoh. So don't miss the gravity of it. So what's his response? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so, from, so not only did he deny it, so not only did he stop deliverance, but he also tightens his hand. And so you get a double dose of despair for the people of God. Not only is deliverance not going to happen in the way that they thought it would, but now life is going to be much worse. So he issues the bricks without straw command. This is where he goes to his taskmasters and tells them, because at this point, the people of God have been building monuments for Pharaoh. And they've been doing that by making bricks that were very large. They've made them out of mud and straw. And up until this point, the, the Egyptians have provided the straw. And they've provided half of the resources to make these bricks. Now, Pharaoh has come back and said, because you must be idle, I mean, that's got to be the reason why you're, uh, you're, you're wanting to go out into the desert to have a feast, to worship God, because you must have more time on your hands than you actually really need. So I'm going to make you busy. And so what he does is he said, instead of the Egyptians giving them straw, you're going to have to go get the straw. So you have to go get the mud. You have to get the mud to make it and the straw to make it. And you cannot stop or hinder the amount of bricks that you make. The quota still has to be met. So not only do they have to meet the same quota, which was treacherous, even by itself, and we're going to look at that here in a minute, but now they had to do it by getting their own straw. 
hear his intent. His intent, while he said, and he attributed it to idleness, his intent was, was not more productivity because he didn't increase the amount of bricks that needed to be made. He simply made it more difficult. He didn't ask to increase productivity. He just wanted to flex, remind them of their place, and strike fear in the hearts of God's people. Moreover, he didn't want the people of God, of Yahweh, the Israelites, to believe the lies, the lies that Moses was telling. Would you see that in the text? He says, they don't need to be idle because they need to dismiss the lies that Moses is telling. Because Moses is saying, Pharaoh is not God, Yahweh is God, we need to obey and follow him, not this man. And so Pharaoh wants to make them so busy that they can't even consider the idea of deliverance. They can't even consider the idea of freedom. Now, making bricks was a difficult job just as it was, and that's without the straw command. Just as it was, it was difficult. The average brickmaker could make around 2,000 bricks per day, which was a lot. I, when I saw that number, I was, uh, I was shocked by it. A skilled brickmaker could do up to 3,000 if you worked really hard. But listen to this quote from, a, from an Egyptian who wrote this down during this time about what the life of a bricklayer looked like. He said this, He is dirtier than vines or pigs from treading under his mud. His clothes are stiff with clay. His leather belt is going to ruin. Entering into the wind, he is miserable. His sides ache since he must be outside in a treacherous wind. His arms are destroyed with technical work. What he eats is the bread of his fingers and he washes himself only once a season. He is simply wretched through and through. So the life of the bricklayer, which was a prominent and popular job, was very, very difficult. It was very difficult because it was strenuous, it was technical, and now, not only that, he had to go and find his own straw and still continue to meet the quota. This was, a, this was an incredible task and one that would have absolutely driven them to despair. But more than that, it was very clear that this was less about productivity and more about an indictment on the people of God. Punishment was inevitable. This decree from the Pharaoh was punitive. He wanted to flex and wanted to make sure that no one, no one would ever challenge his authority again. Now the foremen, which were people that worked for the Egyptians, but they were Israelites, they pleaded with the Pharaoh on, on the people of God's behalf. They pleaded to tell them, this, hey, listen, this is not feasible. This is only going to result in death and harm and punishment. And if you don't fix it, it's going to be your fault, is what they said. And Pharaoh replies with verse number 17, which is where we're at. And he says this. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So when we look at this text this morning, we need to understand that what we see are two different reactions from the people of God. 
The first one is fear. And at some level, fear is understandable when you're faced with certain death. And I, I empathize with them, to be honest. I mean, think about what has happened up, in, up until this point. God, they have been in slavery for years. God has heard their cries. Promises were given of full deliverance, not partial deliverance, full deliverance. And signs were shown to prove that God was powerful enough to do it. At that point, hope had been established. And the first action from that hope led to despair. It completely vacuumed vacuumed out all of the hope in the room. The idea that they were expecting Moses and Aaron to come out and say, yeah, he's letting us go. Only to get, no, he's not only not letting us go, but he's making life infinitely harder, infinitely more difficult. I empathize with, what they, with how they feel, with this fear that they feel. Deliverance in their minds was going to be immediate, and the only thing immediate was pain and suffering. And what they defaulted to and what we default to at times is when we're faced with a trial, something that we didn't see coming our way, we blame others or God. And in their case, they blamed Moses and Aaron. They blamed them for the problems that they faced. They blamed them for making them look bad in front of Pharaoh. But behind their resentment towards Moses and Aaron is resentment towards God. That when facing the dilemma of either trusting God or Pharaoh, they chose Pharaoh. To them, it was if God was bringing evil upon them and Pharaoh was the one who could, if appeased, return some good by relief. They feared Pharaoh, but they forgot to fear God. The hatred of Pharaoh to them had become more precious than the love of God. Because the truth is, is that the love of God sometimes doesn't look like the way that we want it to. Sometimes the love of God is an embrace. And sometimes the love of God is a rod. But either way, the love of God is always present. It's always there. It's always near. And they forgot that. But the truth is, is that there was never going to be a peaceful coexistence between God's people and Pharaoh. It was never going to exist. Pharaoh, at the end of the day, was a slave master. Pharaoh was a tyrant. And so it didn't matter. Even if he he gave the straw back, they were still slaves to him. They were still beaten and tortured and at times killed. They were still pillaged and were not allowed to flourish at all. There was never going to be a peaceful existence. As long as someone is able to rule absolutely, they will be absolutely corrupt. And you see that in the heart of Pharaoh. And not only is that true for them, but that is also true for us. Replace Pharaoh with idols or the enemy. The truth is is that when we trust in something that is not God, it always over-promises and under-delivers. It promises peace and joy that it cannot fulfill. It promises prosperity. It promises health even. And it cannot fulfill it. It always over-promises and under-delivers. And then... If it couldn't get any worse in over-promising and under-delivering, it then convinces us that God's the problem. And the truth is, is that what often happens when we lose sight of fearing God and we start fearing losing an idol, what we end up doing is that whenever good comes our way, we take credit for it. When bad comes, we shake our fists at God. That God's the problem. He's never the solution. He's always the problem. 
And that's what happens when fear captures us. And the truth is, is that following the Lord can and often does result in war before peace. What I mean by that is that sometimes life can get more difficult before it gets better. Because the idols that in our life will not go without a fight. Idols in our life, things that we worship, they love to be worshipped. Even if they don't realize it. Even if it's as simple as a loved one. They don't understand that we may worship them in some ways. But they get to experience the fruit of it. And the minute you stop doing that is the minute that things start to get more difficult. The people said, you made us a stench to Pharaoh. But the truth is, is that God was saying, no, I want to make Pharaoh and Egypt a stench to you. And until God unmasked our slave master for who he truly is, we will continue to long for and love the chains that bind us. And unless we experience the tyranny that the idols bring to our life, the things that we worship, we won't ever hope in God for the freedom that he offers. We have to be willing to sacrifice the idols, that anything that's not God, because they always overpromise and underdeliver. All right, let's keep going. So fear is the first thing that we see. The second reaction is forgetfulness. Verse number 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So commentators are split on whether or not Moses was praying uh, to God in faith or praying out of losing his faith like the rest of the Israelites. Uh, What we do know, though, is that at bare minimum, his faith was shaken. That's for sure. At bare minimum, he was shaken. What we also know is that when confronted with a trial or something that didn't go his way, he did run to God. He didn't run anywhere else. He didn't try to take it in his own hands. He went to God and didn't just go to God, but called him Adonai, which is master, ruler. So he still acknowledged God was his master. But what he didn't do, he forgot the promises that God has kept up until that moment. And this is a constant theme of God's people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Moses forgot about the promises given to Abraham that God was going to make him a great nation, a great people. He was going to give him more children that outnumber the stars in the sky. God had done that. He had fulfilled that promise in a crazy powerful way with the people that were enslaved by the Egyptians. God had fulfilled an amazing promise that he had set out with Abraham. He also forgot the promises that were made to Moses himself in the desert. In fact, I'm not the sharpest tack in the box, but I do think that Moses was told this was going to happen four or five times before it actually happened. That God told Moses, hey, listen, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to cooperate, but don't worry, I will deliver you. Don't worry, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. When you go in there, he's going to deny you and things are going to get a little bit worse, but I will deliver you. He already told him this was going to happen, but he absolutely forgot it in the moment. Because Moses forgot what God told him in the desert and cared more about the approval of other people. Moses in that moment cared more about what the people of Israel thought about him and less about what God thought about him. The approval of people had become more precious to Moses than the call of God. And the truth is, is that we wouldn't want what Moses did for God to happen to us. And by by that I mean, we wouldn't want somebody to step in in any moment in our life, good or bad, 
and just take a snippet of our time and make an entire character judgment off of us in that time. We wouldn't want them to do that because that's not fair and it doesn't represent the entire scope of who that person is. And if it were you, it doesn't represent the entire scope of you. In order to understand you and make a character judgment about you, you would need to be involved in your life more than just a five-minute snippet. And so why does Moses and why do we think that it is okay for us to take a moment where we perceive God or this, at least in the bare moment, for this situation to be unjust and then shake our fist at God and say that he's wrong and say that he's right. Moses didn't have any right to be able to go before God and say, you have done evil to this people. Moses in that moment compared God to Pharaoh. If you notice in the text, what he, what he did was he said, God, why have you done evil to this people? And then finished his prayer by saying, Pharaoh has done evil to this people. In other words, I believe that God and Pharaoh are working together is what Moses is at least at bare minimum implying. He, he compares God to a broken, fallen tyrant and says, you've tricked us. We see similar men throughout the Bible respond in a, in a similar way. So in Jeremiah, he gets this incredible call to go before God, and it's not going to be easy, but, and he told him that. He said, I'm sending you to a stiff-necked people. I'm sending you to people that are stubborn. But what happens? It just does not go well for him. He gets beaten, thrown in ditches. His life is always put in peril. And you get to Jeremiah chapter 20. And he says, God, you deceived me. That's a strong word. Mainly because God says throughout the rest of the Old Testament that he abhors and hates deception. And so for Jeremiah, in, in fact, when you look in the Hebrew, the word is actually, actually seduce. God, you seduced me. You tricked me. You deceived me. And that is essentially what Moses is saying here in this moment. God, you said you were going to deliver and you have not delivered your people at all. You tricked us. But the truth is, is that that's not a fair representation of God. Because God is able to look at the span of time and know what deliverance looks like. And any decision that God makes is the right decision. Any path that God leads us down is the right path, even if it appears difficult. I don't know if you've ever read any of the Chronicles of Narnia or watched any of the movies, but I specifically like this moment in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe in the, in the movie when Edmund, one of the boys, he betrayed his people and broken the laws of the land. He's being brought forward before Aslan by the white witch who is the evil one in the area. And Edmund technically was under penalty of death. He should have died. But Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, invites the white witch into his, into his tent to make, um, to make a plea basically saying, and he comes out to say, I'm going to be the one to take the penalty of death, not Edmund. And it's powerful. And he walks out and he just nods his head. The white witch goes back to her carriage. And before she, t- before she sits down, she turns and says, how do I know that you're going to keep your promise? And he doesn't even utter a word. He just turns and roars at her. 
and it echoes throughout the mountains, and she sits down in her carriage in fear. There are no words spoken past that point because she knows how preposterous it is to question whether or not God would keep his promise. Aslan didn't even have anything to say other than roar, other than to flex, other than to show, how could you ever question my power, my authority? But the truth is, is that we are no different, and at times we can question God. We also forget the promises God keeps and has kept. And whenever we question, we tend to question one of two things. We tend to question his goodness versus his greatness. And rarely, well, I guess rarely is not fair. It's not often that both of those work together and we don't question either one. See, sometimes we'll question God's goodness. We're fine with his greatness. We know that, he, that he's omnipotent. We know that he is um, omnipresent. We know that he's omniscient. We know that he's existed for all of eternity. We know that he can do all in all and through all. We know that. That is absolutely true. And I'm not sure if he's good. I know he knows everything, and I know he can do everything. I know that he's a king, but I don't know if he's a father. And then, but then the other side is true too, because if God's good, how could he be great? Because if he's good, then he has the ability to empathize, to love, and to care, but that doesn't necessarily mean he can do all. We, we tend to question one of these two things, but we are called to meet them in the middle, that God isn't just good and he isn't just great, he's both. That God is all powerful, God is a king, but he is also loving and a father. He's both. But in order to arrive there, this requires the third reaction. So, first we had fear, second we had forgetfulness. The last one, which you don't see here in this text, but we ought to have, is faith. Faith is about evidence. And if our primary evidence that God is at work is based on our circumstances, then our faith will always be strained when we get blindsided by moments that fail to meet our expectations. It is our responsibility to weigh the evidence of God's character, promises, and track record against our present circumstances that we face and the fears that we think may, uh, what may occur. We cannot allow the status of our heart to begin to dictate what is right or wrong. We do not get to control how things play out. Archbishop uh, William Temple said it this way. When we open our eyes as babies, we see the world stretching out around us. We are in the middle of it. All we see is determined by the relation of all objects to ourselves. This will be true as long as we live. I am the center of the world, I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. The same is true of our mental and spiritual vision. Some things hurt us, and we hope they will not happen again. We call them bad. Some things please us. We hope they will happen again. We call them good. Our standard of value is the way uh, things affect ourselves. So each of us takes his place in the center of his own world. But I am not the center of the world nor do I determine what is good or bad. I am not the sinner. God is. So this is what faithfulness looks like. What faithfulness, faithfulness says is I am not the sinner. I do not, get to, I do not get to make decisions on how life will go. 
that any decision that I make is ultimately self-seeking, but any decision that God makes is after the good. That God himself is the determiner and standard of what is good, what is right, and what is just. And any time that I push against that is the minute that I actually desire a worse outcome. God himself is able to determine what is right. Faithfulness looks like you not telling God, save me like this. But rather, God, I know that you're good. Save me how you want. That is faithfulness. Consider what Christ said on the cross or before he went to the cross when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He pleads with God, take this cup away from me if there's any way. But he doesn't stop there, does he? he, He says, nonetheless, not my will, but your will. Because that's what true faithfulness looks like. What faithfulness faithfulness says is, God, it is your will that will be done, not mine. Yes, I do want this to happen, and I want my circumstances to get better. But at the end of the day, you make the right decisions, not me. That is true faithfulness. Moses feeling betrayed by God is deep. Because like I said, he compares God to Pharaoh. He didn't allow for God to do things his own way but instead had his own expectations, his own desired outcomes, and his own vision for how this was going to play out, and it didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, he called God evil. But the truth is, is that the power of God in our life, in his life then, in the people of God's life, and in our life, the power of God flows through obedience that is rooted in faith. And that this kind of obedience that's rooted in faith produces the hope that combats despair. That when faith is present in our heart and in our mind, we are able to combat, combat despair with hope. We're able to look forward to what the Bible says is unseen. That's the only way that you combat any kind of despair that fills our life is with hope. Hope that God will deliver, that God will accomplish his plan, and that whatever that plan is, whatever it looks like, is the right and good one. Okay, so what does this look like? So we don't, want, we don't want to have the reaction of fear. We don't want to have the reaction of forgetfulness when trials come our way. But instead, we want to have faith. What does this look like? Here are some things that we can do to survive these waves of disappointment that seem to always come our way. And if they haven't come your way at some point, I'm sorry, I have bad news. It will because it comes for us all. Because we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. Sin will come our way. Just give it time. Number one, we need to acknowledge that our, our humanity and our limitations. We need to acknowledge that we are not God. We need to acknowledge that at the end of the day, we are fallible. God is the only one who's infallible. He's the only one that knows all. He's the only one that can do all, and he's the only, only one that can be everywhere. He's the only one that's existed for eternity. We are not. In order to survive waves of disappointment, we have to be able to acknowledge that we are human and cannot deal with these on our own, that we need God. Number two, we need to read the Bible with fidelity. What I mean by that is we need to read the Bible and love every bit of the Bible. We need to know the good things that are said, the encouraging things that are said, and the hard words that are said. We need to both accept when God calls us idolaters and except when he calls us children because they are both true. 
the Bible has to be the standard by which we live and, and run our life. God's standard is the standard. The question should not be, can I do this or can I do that? Instead, it should say, what does the Bible tell me to do? And where the Bible is not clear, what biblical wisdom can I access in order to be faithful to God? This is why theology and doctrine is so important. A lot of people hate those words because they think of them as intimidating or taking away from the spiritual aspect of Christian worship. But the truth is, is that we do nothing apart from the Bible and nothing apart from doctrine. In Paul's letter to 1 Timothy, one of the very most important things that he tells him as he commissions him to pastor the church of Ephesus is keep a close eye on the doctrine. There will be false teachers that come in and preach a different message. In fact, he even says to the church of Galatia, if an angel shows up and preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. Doctrine and knowing your Bible is incredibly important because the way that we deal with suffering and the way that we are able to hope will be determined by the words that we live by. So whether they're your words or God's words, it's your decision. But the truth is, is that if you want hope, if you want faith, if you want truth, we must read the Bible with fidelity. So when the waves of disappointment come our way, we're able to deal with it and handle it. Not because we are good, but because God has made promises that he will keep. Lastly, so first we need to acknowledge our humanity. We need to read the Bible with fidelity. And then lastly, we need to look to the cross of Christ as evidence that God is for us. Because Jesus, in faith, faced the worst that you and I will never have, because, and so now you and I won't have to. The truth is, is that Moses and Aaron went into the chambers to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh tightens his grip and says, no, I'm actually going to make it more difficult. I'm going to make you suffer and die because you challenged my authority. And what does Christ do on our behalf? He says, let my people go and I will die for them. He steps in the way. He takes the punishment. He receives the death so that way we can receive life. We can cling to the same promises that Christ did, and we can face seeming emotional, spiritual, and even physical death, knowing that we will not be put to shame. One way or another, God will deliver. We can rest assured that regardless of what, this, what our life turns out to be, if you are a follower of Christ, God will deliver you. He will. The cross is where God's greatness and his goodness converge together. Greatness in that sin had to be accounted for and justice had to be done. So there was a price to pay. God cannot be holy and allow sin to just go unpunished. So sin was punished. God's greatness was shown. But his goodness was also shown because he chose to step in himself. The cross is where we see God's goodness and greatness converge. And when we are met with a wave of disappointment, we can look to the cross because it is clear evidence that God is for us. What I'm going to do is, and as we close out, I'm gonna, I just want to read Psalm 42, the first five verses. I want to read it over you guys. Because for me, over the past... So over the last like eight or nine weeks, 
this sermon was determined, that I, I was going to preach this text at this time about eight or nine weeks ago. Little did I know that a week, week and a half before this, I was going to experience a caving underneath. That God, in order for me to talk about despair, he was going to make sure I knew it. He was going to make sure that I experienced it. And when I experienced these moments of despair in order for hope to stay at the top, because the truth is, is that I would be dishonest if I didn't say the easy and natural default is to be afraid, to be discouraged, and to forget. That's the easy response. That's the default. Faith is not the default. So in order for that to remain at the service, this text is one that I run to. I want to read it over you guys, then we'll pray. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So he's experiencing circumstantial difficulty. He's being made fun of, talked about, being questioned in ways that he shouldn't be as a king. And the people around him are saying, hey, you're going through this. Why? Uh, Where's your God at? Shouldn't he solve this? In the same way that they did for Jesus on the cross. Well, if he's God, can't he just get down? If, If he's God, if he's the son of God, where's the father at? They, the natural default for not only the people around us but ourselves is to make faithfulness on God's end tied to our circumstances. And they did, the, they did this here. That's what David was talking about. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So in other words, I'm not going to listen to them and tie God's faithfulness to my circumstances, but instead I'm going to take those around me, the faithful ones, the people of God, into a place to praise him and worship him. Then he says this to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for again I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray.